While you're standing, would you take your Bible and turn to 2 Thessalonians? 2 Thessalonians, we continue now in a study verse by verse through the uh, book of uh, 2 Thessalonians. We've completed 1 Thessalonians, and by God's grace, we've come to chapter 2. And uh, this will be a several-part sermon dealing with basically the same theme as I indicated uh, when I first came up a few moments ago. The second coming of Christ, I think that's a subject that all of us are interested in, or at least should be. And so Paul wants to help believers then, and he wants to help them now, by uh, giving some encouragement, some correction, and he'll do that as we will see over the next several weeks. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Father, now we delve into a subject that is on the minds and the hearts of many people. In fact, it is a subject that has been on the minds and hearts of people for 2,000 years. And yet we sense that that coming is closer now than it has ever been before. We pray for wisdom as we work our way through these and other scriptures that come to bear on this. And help us, Lord, to be prepared for that day. Help us to recognize those infallible signs that you said must happen before you come back and gather us to yourself. And so we thank you that you will lead us. You've promised to do that through these fallible lips and the, the, the fallible mind that prepared this. Help us not to miss the infallible word of God that we will hear today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think you saw it from the teaching or from the reading that I did just a few moments ago. Obviously, Paul is talking to the believers at Thessalonica about the second coming of Christ, the parousia. Now, you're going to see that word in just a few moments, so you don't have to try to remember it or spell it or write it down. But here is the situation. I hope you caught it. The faith of these relatively new believers had been shaken by false teaching. 
there have always been in the life of the church for the last 2,000 years people that have crept into the church, people that are outside of the church who teach things that will lead the people of God astray. And so these people had become alarmed. Their faith had been shaken by false teaching, listen, to the effect that the day of the Lord had already come and somehow, somehow they had missed it. So what they were dealing with was, could I say it like this, false narratives, fake news that had caused them great emotional upheaval and even ungodly living. We're going to see how that this, this kind of thing is never benign. It always leads to ungodly living, and we'll discover that as we move through a study of this book. Now, let me just say this so that you will follow me. I know that you probably have come under the teaching or influence of a particular kind of, let me use this word, eschatology, the study of last things. Your particular eschatology may not agree 100% with my particular eschatology, but be assured of this. All of us who believe this book believe that Jesus is coming back bodily and literally. Just as he came in his first coming, he is coming again. And so what I want to encourage you, exhort you to do is listen and to be open to what the Word of God has to say. Here's why. Sometimes we take third-level issues and we put them in the first circle, first-level issues, things not essential to salvation, and they become divisive, and we do not want that. Paul didn't write what he wrote that I just read for speculation. He wrote it for correction, and he wrote it for encouragement. So here we are, 2,000 years after he wrote this, and for a lot of reasons that I won't get into today, I personally believe, you may disagree with this, but I personally believe that we are seeing the prophetic clock wind down. And I personally believe that the Lord's coming is soon. But as we just read, there are two things that you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, need to be on the lookout for. Two things that must happen before the Lord returns. Now, I, I'm going to refer back to chapter 1. Remember verses 6 and 7. When the Lord returns with his angels in flaming fire, he's going to do two things. He's going to meet out affliction to those who afflict us, Christians, and then he's going to grant relief. To those who are afflicted. When is he going to do that? Let's discover that. Begin to discover that. Let's just go. You see right there on your outline, I've simply listed the verses. We're going to walk our way through this. Verse 1, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and it's very clear from the language that these two things, however you interpret them, go together. 
the coming of our Lord and the being gathered to him, our being gathered together to him. And then he says, we ask you brothers. Now, the ESV loses the urgency that the King James has. Because the King James keeps the literal order of, of this verse. And basically, Paul starts out with, we beseech you, we beg you to consider something, considering the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and that concurrent event are being gathered together with him. He has a sense of urgency in light of his glorious coming. Now, we're going to do three things right here under this heading, under this verse. We're going to describe his coming, okay? And, and all I can do is just give you a broad outline, a broad sweep. We're going to talk about the person of his coming, and we're going to talk about the work that he's going to do at his coming. So let's just look at that. His coming described. Do you realize that in First and Second Thessalonians, I always think it's a good thing for you to mark your Bible. And uh, as I study, I read and reread and reread and reread. And one of the things that I did was put a little R right here for the revealing. And I circled it. And I went all the way through uh, 1 Thessalonians and then 2 Thessalonians. Do you realize that Paul, in these two letters, refers to the revealing, to the coming of Christ 17 times? These two books are rich about the second coming of Christ. We cannot know about the second coming of Christ apart from what Paul wrote. Remember, this is early on in his ministry, some of the first writing that he did. And he describes that day, that coming with various terms. Now, I challenge you to read through it as I have. I do not see a dividing out. Whenever he talks about this and uses a different term, and I think we'll see this as we go through it, it uses different terms, but it all describes the same event. So, his coming, the day of the Lord, that day, his appearing, his revealing. And just as there was a first advent, a first coming, when he was a babe in Bethlehem, there is going to be a second coming. Let me put it like this. The second coming. Now, again, all of these events seem to point to the same event that the angels were referring to way back before the ascension of Christ. Do you remember that? The ascension of Christ, he, he had been with the disciples and, and he had given them the great commission. They had asked him, when are these things going to happen? When are you coming again? They wanted to know the timing. And basically what he said to them, it's not the timing that I want you to be concerned with. What I want you to know is that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come and you will be my witnesses. And then he goes on to say these words. And, and, and this event happened as they were looking on. Just told them the Great Commission. As they were looking on, boy, wouldn't you have liked to have been a fly on the wall or a fly on a rock to, to watch these disciples? I, I would have been, 
I, I, don't, I don't know. They were not expecting this. They were glad to have Jesus back. As they were looking on, he was lifted up. This is no Branson sight and sound theater wires under the armpits lifting up. This is a miraculous lifting up and a cloud took him out of their sight and they need, needed to be shaken back into reality. And behold, two men, you can pretty much guess that these are angelic beings in white robes said, men of Galilee, men and women and students of Heritage Baptist Church, why do you gaze into the heavens? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go up into heaven. He went up in the clouds. A cloud took him up into the heavens. Boom, he's there. He's in heaven. He's coming in the clouds again. So what is Paul talking about? Here's what he's talking about. We saw this as we read it a few moments ago. Go back to verse 1. Now concerning the coming. And this is, a, this is a word. There are different words used for appearing and that day and all the rest of that. But this is a specific, all, almost a technical term referring to the second coming of Christ. It's the, the Greek, it's transliterated here. It's called the parousia. That's a Greek with a little bit of Arkansas and Oklahoma accent. Forgive me. The parousia. Now concerning the coming of the Lord and our being gathered together with him, it is the coming. And simultaneously, at the same time, that is, at the same time, we are gathered together with him. Now, let me stop there. Does that sound familiar to something we discussed back in 1 Thessalonians? Oh, I hate to ask this. Sometimes I can't even remember what I preached about last week. So I'm really not expecting you to. I'll, I'll just show you. But look, the same word is used. This incredible verse, we studied this back in, in our study of 1 Thessalonians, for we declare to you by a word from the Lord, this, has, this is official content, that we who are alive. Now, back then there was another concern. The people that had died, they felt like that, that they were missing out. And they were just dead, and they were grieving over that. And, and Paul wanted to correct that. He said, no, no, no. We who are alive, who are left until the coming, the parousia of the Lord, same word that we saw in chapter 2, verse 1, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Okay, now get the picture before we read on. Christians have died. That's the word asleep. Those of us who are alive, does anyone here have a, a Christian loved one who is in the grave? Well, I'll put it this way. Their body is in the grave. They are with the Lord. So Paul wants, wants you to know that, that you're still here. 
And when the Lord comes again, you're not going to precede those. Those who are in the grave, now watch this because we read at the very beginning, this is going to happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. We will be changed. Uh, the, the, the mortal will put on immortality. The perishable will put on the imperishable. Watch this. For the Lord himself, what's he going to do on the parousia? He's going to descend from heaven exactly the way he went up, except it's not going to be quiet. I've heard for years about a silent, unknown parousia of the Lord and the gathering of the people to him. This event is going to be noisy. It's going to wake the dead. Literally, they're going to, boom, I, I just, I can't imagine that day. All over the world, every grave. And by the way, this means that, that those believers burned at the stake, those believers who were thrown into the ocean, those believers who were eaten by lions somehow, God is going to do this incredible miracle. Their bodies will be translated on the way up. Watch this, and they're, they're going to put on their imperishable body. He's going to descend from heaven with a cry of command. We're going we're gonna to see what Jesus looks like in a minute. He's not going to just say, hey, guys, I'm back. This is a cry of command with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, we're seeing all this happen around us, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them, caught up, gathered up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will always be with the Lord. Now, Do you see that, what I just said a minute ago? All of this is going to be incredibly visible. It's going to be loud. The second coming of Christ is going to be noisy. For those of you who have studied it, and by the way, if you, all you have to do is flip back over one page and you'll see that, that passage of Scripture. And some of you might ask the question, but pastor... What about in chapter 5 when it says the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night and like a woman who has labor pains? I, I guess that could be quiet, but I, I, I don't see how that it demands quiet. A thief in the night, think home invasion. What Paul is trying to get across is you're not going to be expecting that. Nobody expects a thief to break in, but all of a sudden you hear the bump in the night. And what do you do? Your heart starts racing. You reach for your wife. Now you reach for your Glock or your AR. Lowell, 
Listen, th there's nothing in there that indicates it's quiet. The thief in the night is, they're banging through things. They're coming after you. Labor pains? When she went into labor, she was not quiet. <laughs> oh, I think it's time. No. Oh, I, in other words, it's unexpected. And it is inevitable when those labor pains start, boom, there's no going back. That's the imagery that Paul uses. So the parousia of the coming of Christ will be loud and it will be visible and it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. I'll give one more little thing on over in verse 8 and we, we're not going to get there today hopefully in the next couple of weeks with the lawless one we're not going to talk about the lawless one today we're going we're to introduce the rebellion that's got to come the lawless one also has to come before the coming of the Lord alright for those who say well I'll get lazy if I think that you better not because there's a lot happening there's a lot going on but watch this, then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming, the parousia, the very same word used in the first verse. Let's talk about the appearance of Jesus. Just, just really, really quickly, we need to get a balance of this. When Jesus comes again, what will he look like? John in the book of Revelation gives us a little insight. John is on the Isle of Patmos and he has a vision. He sees the Lord Jesus. This is the Lord Jesus. He looks different maybe than he did while he was here walking among his disciples. Remember, this is the guy, John, who leaned on Jesus' bosom because he was such good friends. Watch the reaction now. This is what Jesus, this is some. And imagery will not do the full justice. But when Jesus comes, here's what, here's what John saw. Then I turned to see one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest, Hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a fire. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars from his mouth. Oh, this goes back to 2 Thessalonians 2.8 came a sharp edge, two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So what did John do? Did he go up to Jesus and lay his head on his bosom? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. We've got to balance this, folks. We, 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 we just, I need to balance this. All of the stuff that is out there about 
when we get to heaven, when we see Jesus again, we're just going to put our arms around him and buddy up to him and my pal, my... Now, he is a friend of sinners. Yes, yes. And we, we've got to get this balance. When John was confronted with the Lord of glory who is coming again to slay with the breath of his mouth, that incredible man called the man of lawlessness, boom! John saw him and fell on his, on his face. But I love this. What did Jesus do? What he always does? Jesus, full of grace and mercy, he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. Now, what is his work at his coming? We saw this last week. Look back at uh, chapter 1. If you would, just look, just look back up there. It talks about he's going to grant relief to, to those of us who are still here. And he's going to mete out retribution to those who disobey God. He talks about a gathering in chapter 2, verse 1. So let me ask you, in case you're wondering and want to ask me, does the Bible teach a rapture? You're very quiet. Nowhere in the Bible, in the New Testament, is the word rapture found. But the concept is. 1 Thessalonians 2.1 will pair that with 1 Thessalonians, or excuse me, 2 Thessalonians 2.1, pair that with the other use of the word parousia, 1 Thessalonians 4. Now concerning the coming, parousia, of the Lord Jesus Christ, and are being gathered together with him. That word means literally to snatch up, to pluck, to catch up. And then in 1 Thessalonians, then we who are alive until the coming, the parousia, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Rapture is a word that comes from the Latin vulgate, and it means that snatching up, being gathered together with him. But the real key to this, the picture that I believe is very clear, is when it says, and I've underlined this, what will we do? We will meet the Lord in the air. And then what? Now, by the way, do you believe that all of this is literally true? I hope you do. This is exactly what's going to happen. There are debates about words. There are very good men that I quote often and that I, I use as commentators and all of the rest that we don't quite see eye to eye on this. But here is why I believe that this particular picture about meeting the Lord in the air is so important and why the, the rapture and the second coming of Christ, I believe, happen together. Instead of a partial and then the, the full second coming. He says, meet the Lord in the air. 
several other places where that word is used in the New Testament. Let, let me show you some of the pictures where it's used. Matthew 25, 1 through 5, the story of the bridegroom. He's coming. You remember the Jewish custom that, that when a, a young lady was betrothed to be married, their betrothment would last probably about a year. And then at whatever time, they didn't know what time the bridegroom was coming. And that's the whole reason for this story, to have your lamps filled with oil. Don't get lazy. Get some oil for your lamps, because there were five who did, five bridesmaids and five who didn't. So the bridegroom comes out. Here's the picture of this word to meet the Lord in the air. He is coming to get his bride. The five who are prepared, the bridesmaids, come out to meet him and accompany him back to pick up his wife. It's the picture of meet the Lord in the air, okay? Second use of this word. Paul is coming to Rome. This, this is just an everyday use of the word. So we came to Rome, all right, after all the sea travels and all the rest. And the brothers there, the brothers in Rome, when they heard about us, came out as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us, exactly the same word, and walk with us back to Rome. Picture, I believe, that we're looking at right here, the second coming of Christ. We will be gathered up, raptured to meet him, and then accompany him back to earth to grant relief and to give vengeance to those who don't believe in the Lord. I've given you something to discuss over lunch. All right? Should lead to a good discussion. I had a great discussion with a friend yesterday about this, who is a pre-tribulation believer. I'm post-tribulation, pre-millennial, post-tribulation. Just process that. It's for another time. Verse 2. Let's see how far we can get before we need to uh, pack this in. It's, it's really so good. He says, here's why I'm telling you this, so that you won't be quickly shaken in mind, so that your understanding is not going to be shaken. We want you to have sound doctrine. We don't want you to be messed up. We don't want you to be alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. What was upsetting them? The day of the Lord, the parousia, had already come. And they're looking around and they're still under affliction. And they said, whoa, I, if it's come, why are we still going through all the stuff we're going through? Why are the wicked not judged? Have we missed it? Now, Paul... We don't, we don't have everything spelled out here, but it's interesting that late, you remember the last verse that we read, uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 5? Paul actually reminds them, a little bit of a rebuke. He says, don't you remember we talked about all of this stuff? But he comes back and tells them, look, guys, that's why sola scriptura is so important. That's why being in the word is so important. You could write this, this phrase down, okay? I don't know where I got it. It's not original by me, but it's good. Settled faith 
They were shaken in their faith. Settled faith must rest on sound doctrine. Why are there so many Christians that are alarmed today? Because they're not in the word. I love the psalmist when he says, great peace have those who love your law, your precepts, your word. Nothing can make them stumble. So I will say if you're not abiding in God's word, you're open season to every, how does he say it? Spirit, spoken word, authoritative writings. This morning at our ABF, our Adult Bible Fellowship, our Sunday school class, we talked about false prophets, those who have a word from God, those who are experts. You've got to have my interpretation by my book. Extra biblical revelations. Listen, don't believe everything that you hear. John told us in another place to do this. Don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits. E even even the one speaking from the pulpit. Test the spirits to see if they are from God for many false prophets have gone out into the world. So what does he do? He tells them two unmistakable things that must happen before the parousia, Jesus' return and our gathering. He says the rebellion, the apostasy, the revealing of the man of lawlessness. And he wants us to know about those. Now, here's a question, and I ask this as I've, read through this and reread through this. If, it's, it's a burning question to me, if Paul believed in a pre-tribulation rapture, why did he go to all the trouble talking about the great rebellion and the man of lawlessness? Why didn't he just simply say, you don't have to worry about that, you're not going to be here. But he didn't say that. He clearly says something important about these two events. Verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way. Don't be deceived for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Again, we're not going to get to the man of lawlessness today, but let me say just a couple of things before we partake of the Lord's Supper together. The rebellion and the apostasy. Admit it, things have been bad ever since the fall of Adam and Eve. Would you agree? But would you also agree that there has been an observable worsening? And I'm talking about worldwide. Don't just look at our little culture. Look at worldwide. Would you say that in your lifetime, particularly for some of those of you who have lived for a while, that you can look worldwide and you can see a growing rebellion of, of, every, of lost people, world religions against the people of God? Would you say that you can see that? I believe I can see it. We're going to read in the next couple of weeks that God is beginning, I think, to pull back his restraint so that things will go from bad 
to worse. Understand this. This was one of the last books that Paul wrote. And so he's projecting ahead. He's projecting. And I think to our little time period right now. Understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. He lists some things and then he says, evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse. Deceiving and being deceived. Do you see that? Let me just say this by way of observation. I, I could be off. I see this happening worldwide. And I look back into our history as a culture, and we're relatively young. I'm talking about our United States of America. And for many of the years of my life, we have been relatively spared a lot of the things going on in the world. And you wouldn't know all of the things going on in the world unless you just saw it on the news. Are we seeing a removal of the restraints? that God has had in place? Are we seeing an increase in evil? I'm talking about our culture. And even some of the things that I saw last week, I, I, I don't know how else to say it. I don't, I, don't, I don't want to speak evil of anybody. But just things that are out there, it's It's insanity. I think all of us would agree that a worldwide rebellion against God is, is intensifying, it's spreading. But here's what Paul is really talking about when it says rebellion. The word is transliterated apostasy. You know what that means? Apostasy is what happens in the church. And he's saying that before Jesus comes again, and gathers us up, there is going to be a worldwide, this is not going to be what there's been all the way along, people falling away from the visible church. This is going to be the great apostasy. Matthew 24 alludes to it, and look what he says. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many, many, that's why it's called the great falling away. Many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. This is talking about the church, the elect. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. By the way, right after this passage of Scripture, guess what Jesus talks about next? It's exactly what Paul talks about to the church at Thessalonica. He talks about the man of lawlessness. He talks about the abomination of desolation. What causes apostasy?
What do you think? I, I, I read this article, I, it, 10 reasons people turn away from Jesus, and I thought, wow, disgust in other Christians. Hmm. You ever get disgusted with other Christians? Disappointment with God? Difficulties? Distractions? Discouragement? Doubt? Desires? Distance? Drift? Deceit? And I thought, yeah, all of those are kind of outward. But are they the real reason? Or could it be described that people will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to anything but the Word of God? Doctrines of demons. I've said this before and I'm more convinced than ever. If it offends you, I'll, I've got something to give to you. How could a book like Jesus Calling, with all of the spinoffs, be so popular among Christians today when in the original editions of that, it proclaimed to be a new word from God. The great falling away, I don't think, is going to be a, a very severe kind of thing. It will be just that shedding off of people whose roots did not grow deep, like the parable of the sower. So when temptation and persecution and affliction came or the desire for riches, comfort and ease and all of the rest of that came, they fell away and they were no more. See, the, the, the real thing is not being put out with other Christians. The real thing is the condition of your heart. And that's why with every sermon... No matter what, we, we, we go verse by verse pretty much all the time. Maybe not all the time, but pretty much all the time. And no matter where we are in this, it always boils down to you looking inside your own heart and say, is my heart good soil? You can blame affliction and persecution and temptation, but that's the same sun that causes growth on good soil. So just as Paul started out his first words, I beg you, I beseech you to examine your own heart. Is your heart good soil? Have you received the word of God into your heart? Have you received the gospel? That all of us who have been born on this earth are sinners rebelling against a holy God? We're under the just condemnation of that holy, just, and righteous God, but he has sent his son to be the savior. By believing on his finished work on the cross, by believing on him, that he died in the place of sinners like you and me, the worst of sinners, you can have eternal life. You can know him and know that when that day comes, the parousia, that you'll be gathered up to meet the Lord in the air. And you will always be 
with the Lord. Father, I thank you for the wonder of your word. I thank you for how Paul so desires for not only the church at Thessalonica, but the church at Heritage to not be quickly shaken, to not be alarmed as they see things going on in the world, but to hope, have that blessed hope that we can truly lift up our heads because we believe that our redemption is drawing near. And so, Father, I pray that if there is anyone who, um, a few moments ago as I was sharing the gospel, that is here today that does not know Jesus Christ, that that man or woman or student, boy or girl, would say, yes, I, I know I'm a sinner before a holy God. I believe that Jesus died in my place for my sins. I believe him. I trust Jesus. I pray that would happen even today. Father, now as we prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper, I pray that you would help us not to look at in any way if we are worthy enough, which we aren't, but the fact that Jesus is entirely worthy of us receiving the symbols of his broken body and his shed blood on our behalf. So we thank you for this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.